Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word and for the testimony of your Saint Paul. And Lord, that we would um, be given discernment this morning as to what you are saying to us, that you would speak with clarity to us, that indeed we might be able to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Can you hear me in the back, Chip? Can you hear me? No? You can. All right, well, this is about as good as it's going to get, so maybe I'll just hold it like this. Okay, we're in Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, and I'm just going to read the whole uh, big chunk here. Uh, And when we had parted from them and set sail, remember last week we talked about uh, Paul leaving uh, his friends uh, in Ephesus uh, or in Macedonia and Greece, and he's headed toward Jerusalem, and that very touching um, rather intense moment where he's saying goodbye to them and is able to impart to them some final words uh, and saying, you will never see my face again. And so this is very important, what I'm about to tell you. And so go back to chapter 20 and see that. And so finally, uh, they had parted from them and they set sail. And we came by a straight course to Kos and then the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. Life must be hard having to sail through the Greek Isles. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. When we had come into the site of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another, Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. The word of the Lord. Well, this is kind of a crazy passage. Luke is writing this, and Luke, being a doctor, is very detailed. He does this in his gospel as well. And he is... Uh, letting you know that things like this really happen. So when we left Cyprus, we want you to know that it was on the left. And then we unloaded some cargo up at Tyre. And at that point, they're on uh, the Israel side of the Mediterranean, and they're in what is modern-day Syria, and they're working their way down the coast, which they probably could have just as easily gone on foot. Uh, But instead, they decided to sail down to a very nice area called Caesarea Maritina, not to be confused with Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is up in the northeast. It's where... Uh, Jesus took the disciples and, remember, asked them, who do you say that I am? That's Caesarea Philippi. This is Caesarea Maritina, which is a very lovely place there on the Mediterranean. And while there, he runs into uh, 
Philip the Evangelist, who's kind of a famous guy, one of the seven set aside uh, for the diaconate, and he stayed with them. And uh, this, uh, if this verse ever comes true in your life, you should be troubled. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Uh, that is a deadly combination. And, uh, and uh, what it was is that uh, he had four uh, daughters who were not married. Uh, Luke wants you to know that. Uh, but had some sort of gift of, of prophecy. They were very discerning. And uh, so they, uh, along with Agabus, uh, who's this guy who's come down out of the interior of Israel, has come over uh, and uh, has given this very graphic demonstration of taking Paul's belt off of his own body and binding his feet and hands and saying, this is what's going to happen to Paul if he goes to Jerusalem. Now, uh, instead of... Uh, now, if I were there, just like everybody else, and saw this... Uh, and I were Paul, I'd probably think twice about going on to Jerusalem, right? I mean, wouldn't you? This is, uh, even, even if uh, uh, Agabus has no idea what he's talking about, uh, even so, uh, this is some troubling uh, word. And this is not the first time that this word has been given. Before he set sail, uh, the Ephesian elders warn him too, don't go to Jerusalem. Uh, they're just going to kill you uh, when you're there. Now, but Paul continues to set his face to go toward Jerusalem, uh, even here admitting that it might ultimately end uh, in his death. But what we hear is that Luke is telling us in the book of Acts that both Paul and Agabus and Philip's daughters and others, they're all saying the same thing. And what is that? The Spirit of the Lord is telling me. And so you have one side who's saying, God is telling me to tell you, don't go to Jerusalem. But then you've got Paul who is saying, God is telling me this is exactly where I need to be going. Who's right? How do you determine uh, who God is actually speaking to? Uh, who is the word? Because if you took a vote, nobody's going to vote for Paul here. The majority is on the side of Agabus and Philip's daughters and everybody else. And so this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about how we hear the voice of God and how we discern His voice uh, in our own lives. Well, it's very clear in the testimony of Paul's ministry that he was being led by the Spirit. Does it mean that Paul is infallible? Uh, we're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, but what it does mean is that Paul was very sensitive to what the Spirit would have him do. Uh, and so we have that testimony that he certainly, most of his life, from what we can tell, was being led by the Spirit and he, was, uh, he submitted himself uh, to what God would have him to do. And so if Paul is being led by the Spirit and other Christians, especially there at Tyre uh, and, uh, and Caesarea, are saying, um, you know, this isn't what God wants you to do. Uh, what's going on? Is God saying two different things to two different people? Uh, is He actually saying one thing, but it's being misinterpreted? Uh, or are they just making it up uh, as they go along? Uh, now, believe it or not, this is a little bit uh, of an issue uh, in the church even today, uh, which is why uh, we're talking about it right now. But this whole notion of discernment discerning what God is saying to you. And normally when we talk about discernment, 
We talk about it in, in the context of trying to figure out what God is saying to you in that moment normally pertaining to a certain thing, like whether or not you want to transition careers or whether or not you want to um, embark on a new uh, venture. Uh, I have run into people who uh, have actually stood in their closets and said, Lord, what shoes do you want me to wear today? Well, we're going to get into that too because God frankly doesn't care about what shoes you're going to wear. But if God is speaking, which we trust He is, why is there so much confusion in the church? Who is right? Who is wrong? How do we make decisions? How do we discern what God is actually saying to us? Well, one of the things that we see here is that Paul is able to differentiate very clearly between two things. One, the difference between defective teaching and false teaching. Now, by defective teaching, uh, what I mean is that something that is not quite up to snuff. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be considered solid biblical teaching, uh, but it's... Uh, let me give you an example. So if you go and you hear a sermon uh, that says, uh, you know what, you just need to do your best in life, uh, and that uh, God really just wants you to be a good neighbor and to live a moral life, that would be a deficient and defective teaching, right? Because there's a truth uh, to that. Of course, that's God's desire for our life, uh, that we would live holy lives given over unto Him. Uh, but that's not the whole story. Now, a false teaching would be, if you want to get into heaven, uh, you need to live a really good life and try the best you can and hope that at the end, God grades on a curve because that's the only way you're going to get in, and even then you're not going to get in. Uh, that, you know, if, if someone's saying being good enough is going to get you into heaven, that would be a blatant false teaching. So what Paul is dealing with here is a defective and a deficient teaching. It turns out in hindsight, as we can see in the succeeding chapters, that Paul is being called to Jerusalem. This is where he is supposed to go. And so it takes a lot of courage in the face of a lot of people saying the complete opposite to stand in what the Lord is doing, especially when people are coming up to you and saying, actually, God has given me a word. Now, I um, have been uh, around people before uh, who have come to me and they've said, we want you to know that, uh, well, first off, we want you to know that we're here because we love you. And that's when I think, oh, shoot. And then they say that God has given me uh, a word uh, for you. And I mean, there's an element of I'm kind of excited about that. I wonder what God would have to say to me that uh, he doesn't want to say to me, but he has said to you. Uh, and I believe that that can happen. Uh, but um, there is, uh, uh, there is uh, an element of discernment that has to take place uh, in that uh, moment. And to actually be able to say, I'm so confident in what God is saying to me about this right now that somehow I have to put out your voice because your voice is actually saying to me what I want to hear. All right, Paul probably would rather not go to Jerusalem because he knows that, you know what, if I go to Jerusalem, you're right, I might die. But that's what God wants me to do. Uh, that is a great deal of confidence uh, in, in the Lord Jesus and His ability to speak to Paul in the face of such opposition. As my grandfather would say, that the Holy Spirit gets blamed for a lot of things that the Holy Ghost would never do. And so it is uh, even in the church 
today. Now, when people come to me uh, seeking counsel or trying to figure out what, they want to, what God is saying to them and doing in their lives, uh, one of the things that I've realized is if we're listening for the voice of the Lord, we need to be careful to listen before we speak. Uh, I will admit to you that I used to have the very bad habit of while somebody was speaking to me, I would begin to formulate my response in my head in that given moment while the other person is talking, which means what? I'm not listening to them, right? I'm thinking about what wonderful words of wisdom I can impart to them. And so you'll be very happy to know that when you come and talk to me, I'm not thinking about a thing. I have a totally empty mind. Uh, and I actually am uh, listening to you. Uh, and when we finish listening, then we can discern uh, what the Lord is saying and the Lord is speaking. Uh, because I am always too quick to speak and not so ready to listen. And so getting out of the way and actually listening uh, to people is absolutely key and paramount. Uh, you can tell here too in Acts 21 that there is a lot of emotion. I mean, it started out with, well, all of Paul's ministry is marked by emotion because it's so dramatic. Uh, but especially in his leaving uh, Greece and heading down to Jerusalem, it's packed with a lot of emotion. And so even the words that they have to Paul of don't go to Jerusalem are actually rooted in love. The reason why they're so passionate about it is they don't want to see Paul die. They don't want to see him get hurt. And so they think, surely, this must be the Lord speaking, but really actually who's speaking are the feelings of their own heart. But can God actually speak through intuition and feeling? Uh, we can say yes, in a sense. That is, if the Holy Spirit of God is living within us, He can speak to us and we can hear Him. But we still have to discern what He is saying. I don't know about you, but it's very rare that I get a definitive word about whatever complicated thing I'm taking to the throne of grace. If our feelings were definitive, there would be no reason to discern. But we must, when being led by the Spirit of God, commit to prayer, conversation, thought, and ultimately to what the Bible would have to say to us about our present circumstances and situations. Now, one of the things that, that, that is very hard to do uh, in discerning things in life is to get an objective perspective and actually to get above it and to see a thing as it is. It's really impossible for us, which is why it's so important for us to bring in trusted brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus to help us discern what does this look like moving forward. Uh, I have always been a huge advocate, especially uh, with folks who are de dealing with marriage problems, uh, if they think that they can manage it themselves, uh, that's often not the case. And how much of a relief it is to actually go to a marriage counselor or a third party, someone who's objective, to actually speak a word of truth into the situation and say, this is actually the reality of it. And the great comfort that that is there. Now, all of you have had this happen in your own lives, whether you've gone to see a marriage counselor or not, where your spouse will come home and say, hey, I was talking to my friend today, and they told me that I really ought to think about taking a long walk every day and just, you know, just being quiet, or maybe I need to, to scale back on my time looking at guilt at 2 in the morning in bed uh, while you're trying to sleep. Do you know what guilt is? Gee, it's, a, it's a clothing site that women look at that I've never heard of before. Uh, <laughs> 
but uh, whatever it, it happens to be. And you sit there and you hear this, and this friend that has just said this today, you say, I've been saying that for 20 years. For 20 years I've been saying that, but it took that outside objective perspective in order for the person to hear what needed to be said. But there is a problem with trusting our intuition and feeling. Now, I have run into people whose intuition and feeling is much better than mine is. I'm terrible about that. I'm almost 100% a benefit-of-the-doubt guy. And I have people in my life, thankfully, that will say, you need to steer clear of that person because that person is bad news. But, uh, but at the same time, we need to be very careful about how we defer to our feelings and defer to our intuitions. Uh, there's a great hymn, uh, often called The Solid Rock, uh, written by Edward Morton, and we sing it every once in a while, and you probably know it, but the first verse goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Well, what is, what is Morton saying? Uh, of course, you know, we, feelings are, are not a bad thing. Uh, you know, we, we sing about that too. We want the Lord to give us a word of confirmation. We want to know and feel His presence in our life. Uh, but he had enough discernment to understand that I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I dare not trust my sweetest feelings, but I wholly lean on Jesus Christ. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the things about Christianity is that it calls a thing what it is, which is unlike any other worldview, religion, or philosophy in the world. Uh, they often will call it the opposite of what it is. Uh, and so that's why Christianity throws so many people for a loop uh, in the world today, because it works in the opposite way that people think it ought to work. So, for instance, um, in Christianity, uh, we have a God who comes amongst us in order to do what? Ultimately to die, right? To die. And so, even as uh, all of His disciples have fled the side of Jesus Christ, and there is John and the women standing at the cross, and maybe and all the other disciples knowing what's happening at that moment in time, uh, as they looked up upon that dying body, uh, do you think that they looked at one another and said, this is a good Friday? No, it's what? It's the absolute worst Friday that could ever be. This is a really bad Friday. I laugh uh, every once in a while because there was a good Friday where um, we had an usher uh, who got, he wasn't really planning on ushering, and he got conscripted because we had so many people in the service and we needed an extra usher, and he didn't come dressed for the part. And so, uh, and he wasn't really dealing with the crowd very well. And some veteran ushers came up and grabbed him and basically chewed him out and said, you're not doing a very good job. You need to be able to do this. You need to be able to do that. And afterward, my friend, uh, the conscripted usher, came up to me and he said, I mean, Andrew, that was the worst Good Friday ever. I mean, I didn't, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I know of one that's worse. Um, uh, but, but you don't look up at, at the dying form of God in the flesh and say, uh, this is good. Now, of course, we have uh, Easter, uh, which allows it to be called uh, good. But our ability to actually discern God's working in any given moment for us often is the opposite. So when you look up at Jesus and he's dying on the cross, 
our own nature would say God is as far away as he's ever been. But in fact, God was working his purposes out and was more intimate and he was loving the world than he ever has since the foundation of the world. But it's impossible for us to discern that uh, in our own strength, in our own nature, in our own feelings. And so what we need, and Christianity provides this, is an objective reality, an anchor outside of us, that even when we feel like God may not love us, we know that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Uh, we know that Christ Jesus came into the world uh, to save sinners. We know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the perfect offering uh, for our sins. And so, when our feelings, which more often than not tend to lead us astray, it is then uh, that we have to go back to the bedrock. We go to God's Word. Uh, we go to His very uh, words to us and stake our life and our claim and our discernment uh, in that. Now, the problem is, is that many people don't like doing that. Uh, now, in some ways, going back to the Bible seems like a rather obvious thing, uh, but I've heard on numerous occasions people justifying their decisions, uh, their actions, which are contrary to God's Word, by saying, the Spirit has led me to do this. Uh, so that is, I know that God's Word says this, but God has told me to do something different. That's a problem. Uh, that's a significant problem because automatically, the one definitive thing that we have, because your friends who may be giving you very good advice, they're fallible. Your minister who may be giving you very good advice uh, is fallible, uh, but God's Word is not. And so if that is the one, you know, it would... It, the one thing you ought to do is to say, my friends are saying one thing, uh, I'm feeling another thing, uh, but this is what God's Word says, I'm going to stick to it. You're going to be in the right place. Right, go read the book of Job. Uh, he, this, is, this is the story uh, of Job, where his friends and his loved ones are saying one thing, which actually sounds very Christian, but in fact are saying uh, the very opposite of what God is saying to Job. And so all Job had to do, all he had was to cling to the promises of God. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and uh, even though this body die, I shall see him face to face. And so when it doesn't seem clear, God's will that is, if that doesn't seem clear to us, we would do well to exercise caution. And what we see is that Paul gets to a point of resignation in verses 13 and 14. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. That is, I want to believe you. You're actually, what you're doing, I, I, my heart cries out to believe. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Meaning, I know that I'd rather save my tail. I'd rather be Jonah and go off, but I know that God's will will ultimately be done. And the others then echo that by saying, they stopped, let the will of the Lord be done. Actually resolving and uh, resigning yourself to the fact that God is actually in control. Now this isn't fatalism, but it's trust, ultimate and complete trust that God is your Father and actually wants good things for you. Uh, in some ways, you can't blow it. Now this is what I mean by that. 
Uh, I, I was talking to a guy once who was struggling mightily over whether or not he should transfer uh, from one school to another. Uh, most people after one year of college want to transfer, right? That's a given. I don't know what it is, but it's some sort of psychological phenomenon that after one year, everyone wants to transfer. Let me just assure you, the grass is brown everywhere. Uh, and, uh, and so, but this person was actually had some legitimate concerns and, you know, was thinking about changing his field of study and uh, there was a better school uh, to go there. And he was really uh, having the hardest time uh, figuring out where to go. And uh, finally, I just stopped him and I said, do you believe that Jesus is Lord at the school you currently attend? Yes. Do you believe that he's Lord at the school that you're looking at transferring to? Yes. Then just make a choice. Right? You can't blow it. Right? You actually can't blow it that, that God is actually going to work out his purposes. And if you're so afraid that, well, I'm afraid if I do this, it, it might actually, it may in fact be against God's will. But let me tell you, God never sits up in his throne and says, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> right? I didn't think that they would actually transfer. Uh, I thought that I had, you know, it's, it's not like God is choose your adventure. If you decide to go into the bear cave, turn to page 34. If you decide to flee, turn to page 80. Uh, and that, did y'all ever do those books? And then you turn to 34 and the bear eats you and you're like, all right, back to that page. Uh, and then you, you sort of work your way through the book. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Uh, that God's plans and purposes can't be thwarted. And that's why, especially this time of year, what's so miraculous about Christmas is read the Old Testament. Uh, from the time of the Garden of Eden all the way up to the birth of Jesus Christ, the great links that God would go to in order to bring about our salvation. Just crazy stuff. Uh, you read Jesus' genealogy there uh, in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, and uh, there is a mention of some rather shady characters. Uh, so one of the people that gets mentioned is Rahab. Jesus is related to Rahab. Who's Rahab? She's a prostitute, right, in Jericho, who, uh, who, kept, um, uh, who helped the spies uh, of Joshua uh, that came into the city to scope it out before uh, uh, the Israelites marched uh, around the city. And, uh, and whoever went into uh, Rahab's apartment, which was in the wall of the city, actually, uh, it, it, so all the walls fell down except for Rahab's. And anybody who was in Rahab's uh, apartment uh, would uh, be saved, which is really something because you want to be saved in Jericho? Go into the prostitute's house. Right? Not, not exactly an appealing thing uh, and not the way that you would think the Lord uh, would work. Uh, but God's work is always left-handed. We never know where it's coming from. And He works His purposes out in order to save you and me. He doesn't look and say, oh, I didn't think that the Israelites would do that. I mean, the Israelites did everything in their power to thwart salvation. And yet there was nothing that they could do to thwart God's plan to save us through Jesus Christ. And uh, even uh, in, our, in the New Testament, uh, I can't help but think of Peter, who was probably at least the most publicly fallible of all the disciples. And think of Peter. Uh, Peter has uh, on multiple, well, even after uh, Jesus' ascension, uh, Peter at Caesarea Philippi, uh, right after declaring that Jesus Christ uh, is the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world, Jesus says what? I have to go to Jerusalem and I have to die. 
And Peter's response is, surely not, Lord. Right? It's kind of the word given to Paul. That can't possibly happen. And what is Jesus' response to him? Get behind me, Satan. And then a little girl challenges him by a fireside after Jesus has been arrested, and Peter denies the Lord to a little girl, uh, among others. Three times he denies the Lord Jesus. Uh, and then later on in his ministry as an apostle, uh, Paul uh, has to confront Peter face to face because he's lost the grasp of the gospel. Because he's going around and he's associating with people to say, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised, you have to follow all the Jewish dietary laws, that faith in Jesus Christ is not enough for salvation. And so Paul, you can read this in Galatians, has to confront Peter face to face over uh, this issue. Uh, Peter, who is supposed to be the great disciple, but in fact is the most uh, fallible of all of them. There's a wonderful book, uh, which would, I would encourage all of you to read. Frank Limehouse was famous for giving these to people who would never read it. Uh, but it's called Knots Untied. Uh, it is nice and thick. Uh, but it's by uh, J.C. Ryle, who was the Bishop of Liverpool, England from 1880 uh, to 1900. And just a giant, giant of the faith. And served his entire life in uh, the service of the Church of England, uh, a great churchman. Uh, but he was not afraid uh, to talk about uh, the fallibility and, of ministers and really discerning what God is saying to his people, his church. And so I want to read some quotes uh, from J.C. Ryle about discerning uh, what God is saying to us. And so all, he's, he's a Victorian, so be prepared for uh, rather sharp language. Uh, for another thing, let us learn not to put implicit confidence in any man's opinion merely because of his office as a minister. Bishops have often driven the truth into the wilderness and decreed that to be true, which was false. The greatest errors in the church have been begun by ministers. It is absurd to suppose that ordained men cannot go wrong. We should follow them so far as they teach according to the Bible, but no further. We should believe them so long as they can say, Thus it is written, Thus saith the Lord. But further than this we are not to go. Infallibility is not to be found in ordained men, but in the Bible. So he says, look, if you're trying to discern what God is saying to you, your minister can be helpful, but they are fallible. And you must remember that. And anybody that gives you a word that is not congruent with the word of God, and ministers can do this as well, you should think twice about that. Which is why he says, for another thing, let us take care that we do not place implicit confidence on our own minister's opinion, however godly he may be. This is the part that's painful for me, so just bear with me. Be not content with saying, I have hope because my own minister has told me such and such things. Seek to be able to say, I have hope because I find it thus and thus written in the word of God. If your peace is to be solid, you must go to the fountain of all truth. If your comforts are to be lasting, you must visit the well of life yourself and draw fresh water for your own soul. Ministers may depart from the faith. The God written in his heart has a found uh, in the faith. The visible church may be broken up, but he who has the word of God written in his heart has a foundation beneath his feet which will never fail him.
Infallibility is not to be found in even godly ministers, but in the Bible. He continues on to talk about, well, what does this mean when it causes strife? And that brings us back to Acts 21. So you have a difference of opinion. How do you discern that? You look to the Word of God. But what does that do for the unity and peace of God's people? Clearly, there was a little bit of a falling out between folks, and there was certainly a falling out between Paul and Peter and even Barnabas. And so Raoul reminds us, many people will put up with anything in religion if they may only have a quiet life. They have a morbid dread of what they call controversy. They are possessed with a morbid desire to keep the peace and make all things smooth and pleasant, even though it may be expense of the truth. So long as they have outward calm, smoothness, stillness, and order, they seem content to give up everything else. I believe they would have thought with Ahab that Elijah was a troubler of Israel and would have helped the princes of Judah when they put Jeremiah in prison to stop his mouth. I have no doubt that many of these men of whom I speak would have thought that Paul at Antioch was a very imprudent man and that he went too far. I believe that this is all wrong. We have no right to expect anything but the pure gospel of Christ, unmixed and unadulterated, the same gospel that was taught by the apostles to do good to the souls of men. I believe that to maintain this pure truth in the church, men should be ready to make any sacrifice, to hazard peace, to risk even dissension, and run the chance of division. They should no more tolerate false doctrine than they would tolerate sin. They should withstand adding anything or taking away anything from the simple message of the gospel of Christ. Now, last thing. Yes, peace without truth is a false peace. It is very peace of the devil. Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very kind of unity found in hell. Let us never be ensnared by those who would speak kindly of it. Let us remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think not that I came to send peace upon earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Never let us be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth upon the altar of peace. Let us rather be like the Jews who, if they found any manuscript copy of the Old Testament scriptures incorrect in a single letter, burned the whole copy rather than run the risk of losing one jot or tittle of the Word of God. Let us be content with nothing short of the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he uses very strong language, but he concludes with saying why. I am using strong language in dealing with this part of my subject. I know it. I am trenching on delicate ground. I know it. I am handling matters which are generally let alone and passed over in silence. I know it. I say what I say from a sense of duty to the church of which I am a minister. I believe the state of the times and the position of the laity in some parts of England, and he could even say America today, require plain speaking. Souls are perishing in many parishes in ignorance. Honest members of the church in many districts are disgusted and perplexed. This is no time for smooth words. Now, uh, on a lighter note, uh, Paul is the same kind of man. Uh, that's whose Ryle's shoulders uh, he's standing upon uh, because he understands that 
how feelings and even really deep relationships can get in the way of not just discerning, uh, but the results of that discernment of what God is saying to the church today. Now, I am uh, a firstborn, and so by nature, I am uh, I'm a people pleaser. And so I find, and even uh, one of the clergy here said uh, that I'm one of the most least likely to actually uh, say something awkward, uh, although true, and just let it sit out there. You've probably noticed I'll probably come back with a little quip to try to lessen it a little bit. And that's because my own propensity uh, is to desire unity uh, over even false teaching. Uh, when a false word is given. Uh, but I'm convicted by Acts chapter 21 here today, uh, which says that any unity apart uh, from the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, and discerning what God is really saying is actually no unity at all. Uh, and if anybody comes to you, uh, even if they be a clergyman, uh, and preaches to you a false gospel or places actually the unity of the church above the truth of the gospel, uh, that you shouldn't listen to them. Edward Morton, who wrote that hymn uh, that uh, I read on Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, uh, he didn't go into the ministry until he was 50 years old. And this is the latter part of the 18th century, early 19th century. Uh, but he was a much-loved minister. And they loved him so much that as a gift uh, for his ministry, they wanted to give him the church building, to actually give him the church building. And wisely, Morton said, I don't want it. He said, but what I do want is the pulpit. And he said, but I only want the pulpit so long as I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the moment I cease to do that, you should pull me down out of it. And that's the truth of it. And so because what we find, if we want any unity uh, in the body of Christ, uh, we have to find it in the gospel. We have to find it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And apart from that, we'll just find a veneer. We'll just find a veneer. And what you find with brothers and sisters who are walking together is actually a willingness to submit to that. That's why when we get to the end in 14, verses 13 and 14, when Paul says what he says, the people respond, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and set the will, said, the will of the Lord be done. That God is ultimately in control, and the Holy Spirit has a way of working things out. And so we're going to submit to him. And we may have differing opinions Certainly we have differing opinions in the church, but we're going to trust that the Lord is going to sort it, sort it out and that we're going to pray as we do every Sunday and I hope every day uh, that the Lord's will may be done. Questions, comments, concerns? Are you sending a copy of that key for Christmas? David Tanner, I love you. Next question. <laughs> Nothing? Y'all don't want to ask me any hard questions like, well, what about baptism? Why some people dunk and why some people don't? Uh, Andrew, I agree that Knots Untied is just an extraordinarily good book. Um, what is the chapter uh, that you read from today? It is aptly titled, The Fallibility of Ministers. <laughs> it's really good, and you have to understand. What I love about this is uh, on the cover there... Uh, you, um, you see Ryle as an older man uh, toward the end of the 19th century preaching at the port of Liverpool to the immigrants coming in. I mean, just a really remarkable, uh, lovely, uh, wonderful ministry. And uh, if, in fact, 
if you, uh, if you ever read any of Spurgeon's sermons, every once in a while, Ryle will make an appearance because Ryle and Spurgeon were friends, but they would often rib one another without mentioning one another's names, which is always very funny. Uh, you can tell that he's, he'll say, my friend in Liverpool, and then he'll say something disparaging about him. Shannon. Given several months of what you've, you've been teaching, uh, what should our position be when we think we perceive mm -hmm. serious errors in right. interpreting what's in the Bible? Yeah. Humility, uh, I think, is the first one. Because again, recognizing our own fallibility. I do think that there are times when, when God's Word is clear. Again, the great Mark Twain quote, uh, it's not the par parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts I do understand uh, that bother me. And, uh, but John Newton, uh, who uh, wrote Amazing Grace uh, amongst uh, other great hymns of the church, go, you can Google it, it's there, uh, public domain. Uh, he wrote a letter to someone about how, to, how should Christians disagree? How should you show somebody the error of their ways? And it is a godly, wise way forward that is rooted ultimately in what you're wanting to do is to bring the brother or the sister into the fold, into the truth. And yet the church's tendency is to actually go about it in a way that alienates them even more and just gets them more strident in their opinions. And so you, we have to find a way forward, one, that is marked by humility, two, that's marked by relationship. Because nobody wants, <coughs> I mean, the church tried this once uh, by having one-on-one -on -one relationships called the Inquisition, and, uh, uh, but it was a one-way conversation. And, uh, and so really rooted in a relationship and hopefully... Uh, looking for those opportunities uh, to bear witness to the truth. I think Fitz Allison is right, too. The reason why we would want to go to that person who's an error, uh, and again, I would say that there's a difference between deficient teaching and false teaching, uh, but both can be uh, deadly, uh, one more than the other. But uh, Fitz Allison wrote a book several years ago called The Cruelty of Heresy. And what he's saying is that heresy and false teaching is actually cruel. It hurts people. Uh, it, it leads them to believe things that are not true about God, and therefore they actually are headed down a road uh, that is going to ultimately hurt them. Uh, so I, I think humility, relationship, uh, really seeking to win uh, that person back uh, to the truth. And so often I do think that uh, in certain contexts, so if you have a person who has a very public platform, uh, and I can name names, uh, you know, there are plenty of people that I see on television preaching. Uh, I think that the church has the responsibility to say, that's not true. That's absolutely not true. So for instance, we've had some kids uh, in our own church, teenagers, who have gone to a church in Birmingham and come back and said, well, I, I thought I was a Christian, but then I started going to this church and they told me that if I didn't speak in tongues, I wasn't a real Christian. Well, you don't say, oh, well, you know, people have their own opinions. You look at them square in the eyes and say, that's a lie from the pit of hell, right? Your salvation is in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. That's where your salvation lies, not on any... And in fact, the Bible has a whole lot to say about stop worrying about your outer gifts and actually worry that the Spirit would cultivate inner fruit. 
That's what the Bible's worried about. And so there are times when you do have to say that person is a false teacher. Uh, but then there are other times uh, where, especially uh, with friends and family and things like that, uh, where I think that we need to be much more gentle uh, in how we uh, approach that. Unfortunately, it's one of two extremes. Either people say nothing at all and just let the false teaching go on, or they go way overboard and, uh, and start blowing up bridges that are very hard to put back together. And so I think what Paul shows us and what Ryle shows us is uh, not a moderate way, but a biblical way uh, forward on that. Yes, well, I mean, it's, part, it's ignorance. Because I, I have heard people say things that just simply need correction. So, for instance, I read a clergyman's Christmas letter, uh, and in the Christmas letter, he got... What he said wasn't false, but it was totally, it was incomplete. So he said that, he said, you know, we should get excited about Jesus' birth uh, because he's uh, come into the world, and he used the Isaiah 9 passage, um, God with us, uh, and uh, making straight, uh, we heard it this morning in the, um, in the kids' pageant, and, uh, and yet uh, he left it at, well, all that was really important was that Jesus was born, and that was it. So you, I mean, according to his newsletter article, uh, Jesus could have died of pneumonia and he would have been fine. Now, he didn't say that, which would be false teaching, uh, but he left that implied that Jesus didn't come to be the way, uh, but to show us how to change the world rather than Jesus actually coming to change the world. So in that sense, it's saying that's not enough. You're almost there, but it's, it's, it's a deficient teaching. We've seen that in the book of Acts. Remember Apollos? Like he just didn't understand all of it. Or John's disciples who had never even heard of, uh, of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so they took them aside and they said, hey, you're not quite, your, your tank's not full. Let's, let's, let's get you on the right page. And then, but if you had somebody who said, you know, Jesus, uh, as I heard in one Easter sermon that someone sent me, uh, the minister got up and said, you know what, if they found, this is an Easter sermon at a very large congregation, said, if they found Jesus' bones in a tomb today, I'd still be here in church. I wouldn't. Viva Las Vegas, baby. I'm a, I mean, uh, Paul, Paul said it. Paul said, if, if the man has not been raised from the dead, we are most of all to be pitied. And our faith is in vain. And we're just wasting our time. And so to say to find Jesus' bones wouldn't make a difference in Christianity shows a deficient teaching of who Jesus Christ is, which means that they also think very little of sin if Jesus didn't have to be raised from the dead, uh, and that Jesus wasn't who he said he was, and that just, that, that leads, in, that's false teaching. So uh, deficient teaching can quick, quickly lead to false teaching, but I find that deficient teaching, people tend to be much more receptive of it if their ignorance is being revealed rather than their firmly held beliefs being confronted. Charlie. Andrew, if I have a specific discernment problem and I'm looking for the answer in the Bible, where do I start? Yeah. Well, that's just it. Sometimes Jesus doesn't say where you should transfer to, to school, Charlie. Um, and I think anywhere, honestly, anywhere. I mean, there are certainly parts of the Bible that do give uh, great words uh, of encouragement. Uh, and we really didn't get into that of those, you know, those areas that frankly are gray. 
that, you know, whether or not you want to take this new job or uh, whether or not you, um, I mean, frankly, I, I got all bent out of shape because uh, being a firstborn and wanting to please everyone, I had told two sides of the family that we would go to their house for Thanksgiving this year. Uh, and that was dumb of me. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sitting there uh, praying to the Lord, uh, what do we do here? And Lauren said, what do we do here? Jesus is probably up there saying, you, you got yourself here. You know, you figure it out. What do you mean? That's the easy way out. Uh, but really, um, and that became very clear to me that I needed to honor my first commitment, right? But it didn't mean I didn't struggle with it. Uh, so I, I think that in those cases, that's where you really pray and you talk to your Christian friends about it and they help you find a way forward. And as long as that way forward uh, is congruent with God's word, then you're okay. Like if you're looking at a new job and they say, well, rather than get a new job, you ought to start cheating people on, with income taxes, you should probably think twice about that, right? Because that wouldn't be congruent with God's word. Last one, Libby Spain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just uh, the more you're in the Word, the more you're hearing God speak to you. And uh, in the, actually the sharper, I, I would never trust anybody who says they have the gift of discernment who is not always dwelling in God's Word. Right? That's like going to the preacher who never reads his Bible. Why would you do that? You know, you don't, you don't want the dermatologist. You know, my grandmother once asked me if I would go to a dermatologist with acne. Uh, now, I told her yes, but uh, she wasn't buying that. But, uh, but again, would you go to a doctor who didn't think that it was important to read up on the latest medical advancements? Of course not. Or an advisor or an accountant who says, you know, I, the last tax code I read was 1976. Right? You would you'd never do that. Uh, and so why should it be any different when it comes to, to discerning what God's saying today? Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.